4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, where we feature stories and conversations about planetary change. I'm Mike Osborne. In our season premiere, I interviewed John Foley, director of the California Academy of Sciences. We spent a while discussing how the benefits of science and research melt into the background of our day-to-day lives. As our civilizations grow and our societies get more complex, environmental concerns have a troubling tendency to become an afterthought. Unfortunately, our actions often disrupt ecosystems and the lives of other animals with whom we share the planet. Today on Genanthro, we have two stories from student producers. First up, Dinley Delaney brings us a piece about how the U.S. Navy's use of sonar had unintentional but devastating effects on a special population of whales in the Great Bahama Canyon. Here's Dinley. It was March 15th, 2000. Across several islands in the Bahamas, 17 beaked whales were found stranded. Now, every time whales show up stranded on the beach, there are big questions. But this particular event had some especially unusual characteristics. Why so many? And why this particular species? Joshua Horwitz, author of the book War of the Whales, shares this story. It was well known by, by whale researchers that there had been a population of beaked whales that had been resident in the Great Bahama Canyon, they estimate, for 20 million years. So in typical circumstances, these whales never leave the canyon. So there's this very deep, very large canyon where they dive and feed most of the time. Um, and they then there are shallows by the shore which have coral reefs and tiger sharks and all sorts of things that are dangerous to them. And so they never leave the depths of the canyon. The Great Bahama Canyon is the world's deepest and largest underwater canyon. It is twice as long and twice as deep as the Grand Canyon. And as Joshua said, it's also home to beaked whales, which have protruding beaks. They look like really big dolphins. They can grow up to about 40 feet and weigh as much as 15 tons. Beaked whales are incredible creatures. They dive to extreme depths to hunt for squid. They often stay underwater for a full hour and have been known to dive as deep as 3,000 feet. They spend very little time at the surface, which makes them extremely difficult to study. So it was both horrifying and unusual to see so many beaked whales washed up. In researching his book, Joshua Horwitz talked to two scientists who had been tracking the specific pod of beaked whales in the Great Bahama Canyon. Kim Balcom and his wife and partner, uh, Diane Claridge, had spent the 
prior 10 years surveying this population and photo identifying them with with video and still cameras so they knew that there were about 50 or more whales in this in this group Ken and Diane are at the center of this story and as would become clear later Ken was just the right guy to unearth everything that had happened so what was extraordinary about this instance is that there was a somebody who was both a whale scientist and a former Navy uh, sonar operator in a previous life during the Vietnam War. So he happened to know two very important things. Number one, uh, how to preserve a physical evidence trail with fresh specimens. And secondly, who to call at the Office of Naval Research to, to uh, get an investigation going immediately. When the whales were discovered, some had already died. But a few were still alive and showing signs of disorientation. Ken and others immediately got to work trying to save as many whales as they could by pushing them back into deeper water. Soon after, Ken got approval to begin experiments on some of the whales that hadn't survived. He went out and cut off uh, the heads of the freshest specimens he could find. Whales have been known to strand themselves if they are sick, pursuing prey, or following the distress call of another stranded whale. But in this instance, Ken thought that noise might have played a role in the strandings. This is why he wanted to examine their heads. So he was able to, um, working with an assistant, cut off the heads and get them into a freezer uh, of, a, of a nearby restaurant that was run by a friend of his, a walk-in freezer. So um, he was able to actually freeze and preserve the heads, which are the most important, uh, the brain being the most important organ. The heads were later flown to Harvard Medical School where Diane, Ken's partner, put them through CT scanners. What she found was blood pooling in both sides of the head, suggesting that it was unlikely that these whales were hit by just a single object. For instance, if a whale is struck by a ship, the impact would only cause blood and swelling on one side of the head. In this case, the damage was bilateral, a hallmark of extreme acoustic trauma. But if this was related to noise, then where was the noise coming from? Ken suspected it might have something to do with the U.S. Navy, since they had a base nearby. So the Navy likes to conduct war games to test their fleet and their equipment. And these war games were being held for the very first time in the Great Bahama Canyon. Unfortunately, they did it without putting out any marine warnings, without investigating what uh, marine life uh, was present there. And their goal was to detect uh, and destroy, with quotations around destroy, uh, two enemy submarines that were decoys. And submarines, if they're not moving, are very hard to find. And that's where active sonar, where you're bouncing sound waves off of them, uh, allows you to detect them. The Navy uses sonar to map the seafloor and detect objects by sending out sound pulses and measuring how long it takes for the sound to bounce back. Scientists call this the reflected wave return. The problem is, this is the same way that beaked whales understand their surroundings. They use echolocation. Like submarines, they send out noises and listen to the way the sound bounces back. Again, 
beaked whales dive super deep where it's often completely dark, so they are especially sensitive to the acoustic environment. So you had this unfortunate confluence of a, a battle group with sweeping and multi-beam sonar uh, flooding through this enclosed canyon where the, where the sound waves couldn't escape, in fact built up with increasing intensity over the hours. And this population of beaked whales that were diving and, and coming back to the surface over the course of hours who became trapped in the, you know, in this, in this acoustic storm. As Ken and Diane were working to put together all of the pieces of the puzzle, the Navy was also conducting thorough investigations of their own, but with little communication to the public. 18 months later, they did eventually release a statement admitting that their sonar probably caused the mass stranding. The whole event turned out to be a very contentious case. And in fact, it went all the way up to the Supreme Court because many of the Navy's actions were in violation of the 1972 Marine Mammal Protection Act. Joshua says there were two key factors that led to this case gaining the attention that it did. It was this physical evidence trail, but also, not to be ignored, it was also the willingness of Ken Balcom and a handful of other marine mammal scientists to come forward and testify essentially against the Navy. The reason it's a big deal is that, ironically, the entire marine mammalogy field of science and research had been founded and funded by the U.S. Navy because the U.S. Navy had been studying whales since the 1950s when they first discovered that they echolocate underwater. And ever since then, they've been intensely interested to reverse engineer their biosonar to improve their own sonar systems. So it took a lot of courage on the part of, of the scientists to testify in court against the Navy. The whales were beached in 2000, so the subsequent legal case was going through the court system around the same time that the international war on terror was ramping up. And generally, judges tend to defer to national security interests. Sonar is classified as a weapon and a method of protection for the United States, so it's been difficult to encourage the Navy to limit its use of sonar. That being said, a year ago, the Navy did agree to geographic and seasonal exclusions in the Pacific region. This means that they now have to schedule their trainings in habitats and seasons when whales are not around. So the Navy is a very important player in the oceans, and so it's very important to have them on the right side of this issue, and they're gradually getting there. It's in their interest to have less noise in the ocean because they can't navigate. Their submarines can't navigate. They can't find enemy submarines in a noisy ocean. And since this mass stranding event, the Bahamas has actually become a research area for the U.S. Navy with regard to sonar and its environmental impact on whales and other marine life. The Navy is making an effort to strike a balance, respecting the inhabitants of the oceans while doing their job and protecting their country and citizens. There certainly is, is not a, a zero-sum gain. It's not like the whales versus the Navy. The, the oceans are big enough for the Navy to train as it needs to and for the whales to have their habitats. Uh, I think the importance of the Navy in this case is that um, it's totally avoidable. Unlike other forms of pollution, sound pollution, when you turn it off, 
it goes away. I mean, you know, if the plastics in the ocean are there for hundreds of years, coral reef is killed, that's forever unless it can revive. Uh, So there's all sorts of irreversible or much harder to reverse uh, sources of pollution in the oceans to threaten marine life. But sound is one that we have control over. That was student producer Dinley Delaney with author Joshua Horowitz. Again, his book is called War of the Whales. Our next story is about an ecological disruption that hasn't happened yet, but has been talked about a lot, though rarely from this angle. During the 2016 presidential campaign, Donald Trump grew to prominence in part because of his promise to build a wall between the United States and Mexico. Regardless of where you stand on this polarizing issue, one aspect that is not top of the list but is still worth raising are the ecological and environmental impacts of a border wall. Turns out scientists looked into this years ago, long before Trump was even a candidate. Student producer Maddie Bellin brings us the story. When most people think of an undocumented immigrant, they tend to picture a person crossing the border often in search of a better life for themselves and their families. To an ecologist, though, undocumented immigrants can look a little bit different. So what we're focused on here are vertebrate animals that cannot fly. Mammals, except for bats, and then we're talking about amphibians and reptiles. This is Jesse Lasky, a biology professor at Penn State University. Jesse researches human impacts on biodiversity. Basically, how the stuff we build affects those mammals, amphibians, and reptiles. Back in 2011, he published a paper about what would happen to over 100 species if a border wall completely separated the U.S. and Mexico. In the wake of the 2016 presidential election, Jesse's once-buried paper has had a new life. I've always kind of had it uh, in in my mind that that this could come back, but uh, it's it's, uh, maybe a little surprising that it's come back quite so strong, but... um, I guess it shouldn't be based on the the Trump campaign, because that was really a central promise that he made. We will build the wall, yes. We will build the wall. Build the wall. Build the wall. We tend to think of the U.S.-Mexico border as being mostly dry desert. But there's actually a much wider range of climate and habitats. A coast-to-coast border wall would be almost 2,000 miles long, and it would cut through lush coastal grasslands, searing hot deserts, and staggering mountain peaks. Jesse's research suggests that a border wall would be especially damaging in regions that have high levels of biodiversity. A lot of species depend on cross-border migration, and his research shows that a wall would block species from their daily travel to find food. On top of that, it would divide each species population into two smaller ones, limiting their ability to interbreed and spread genetic diversity. One major source of genetic diversity is dispersal uh, from other populations. And if, if you stop that, then you'd likely get decreases in genetic diversity within populations. You know, we're concerned that lower genetic diversity might be a problem for 
the potential adaptability of a species in response to environmental change, like something like climate change. You might expect the species at the border to be mostly little lizards, but it turns out there's actually a much wider variety. Some examples of that might be like the American black bear, which is pretty widespread in North America, but is starts to sort of peter out as you get down to the U.S.-Mexico border. Black bears are an important example because there just aren't that many of them this far south. Jaguars are also not very common around the border, as the border represents the northern edge of their range. Right now, there's only one jaguar living in the United States. People call him El Jefe. If a border wall were built, he would be left without access to his preferred hunting grounds, and he would be isolated from all the other jaguars in Mexico. El Jefe would essentially be the last of his kind. But even if species have a healthy population size on both sides of the border, restriction of cross-border movements would have serious consequences for day-to-day survival. Something like a bighorn sheep, which is widespread in North America, but not so much in Mexico. And we have this desert bighorn sheep that lives in the Southwest. And these populations are fairly small and threatened. And, you know, these things are grazing in a place that doesn't get a ton of rainfall. So, you know, they often have to move large distances to find grazing places and also to find mates. It's clear that building a wall along the border would be potentially catastrophic for species that live there. On the other hand, there's already a lot of development along the border that has had an environmental impact. For example, large sections of a border wall were built during George W. Bush's time in office. So what makes Trump's proposed wall so different? So one thing to note is that the the kind of project they're talking about now would essentially be an impenetrable wall. So all those other things usually have some sort of openings and, and penetrability. But what they're talking about now is a solid concrete wall that's, that's 30 feet tall or something mm-hmm. like that. So that really stands out. Dividing species by throwing a wall between them is already disruptive enough. But there's also climate change to factor in. Climate change poses a very real danger to all species, and that threat is amplified in the context of a border wall. As the planet warms, species may have to migrate northwards to live in the same temperatures they're used to. And we do see lots of movement of the distributions of organisms in response to climate change. This is something that's happening. Um, If species weren't able to do that anywhere along the border, uh, a lot of those things that would need to to shift across the border to track their conditions um, might get squeezed there so so that they would essentially have nowhere to go. There are a lot of ways to study both climate change and negative human impacts on biodiversity. We asked Jesse why he even decided to look at this hypothetical future wall in the first place. You know, this is really a large-scale infrastructure project, you know, among the largest scales you can sort of think of. You know, we don't often do in one fell swoop a project that, that covers, uh, you know, four states and, and, you know, all these very diverse ecosystems. So that was, that was sort of the motivator there, which is, you know, this big project was being plopped down across the continent without really the typical environmental review process. Let's pause on that for a moment. There are a lot of laws in place that should protect our environment from huge infrastructure projects like this. There's the Endangered Species Act, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the list goes on. But in 2005, Congress passed another law that can override all of these regulations. That law, called the Real ID Act, says that any major project pertaining to national security can ignore environmental regulations. So a 2,000-mile concrete wall, one of the biggest infrastructure projects you could possibly imagine, 
would not need to undergo any sort of environmental review process because it would be built under the auspices of national security. At the end of the day, though, it's impossible to know what the real effects of a border wall would be until after it actually gets built, if it gets built. There could be a lot of unforeseen consequences, so having at least one scientific study to examine the environmental issues is worthwhile. That's why we tried to do our work to at least put something there where we might have some sense of what might happen. But it's, it's really dramatically an outlier in, in that sense of the scope of it and the lack of information. This proposed U.S.-Mexico border wall is certainly not the only one out there. Border walls are becoming more and more common in a post-9-11 world, especially in Europe and other countries experiencing an influx in migrants. Millions of refugees flee their homes and need to cross borders to get to safety. Obviously, the concerns about any border wall go well beyond the environment. But it is worth pointing out that when humans build walls to keep each other out, we also block the movements and threaten the survival of hundreds of other species besides ourselves. These animals share our lands, but not our borders, and especially not our border walls. That was student producer Maddie Bellin with Jesse Lasky of Penn State University. That's it for this episode of Gen Anthro. We'll be back on Thursday with an interview featuring John Holdren, who is President Obama's senior advisor on science and technology. Our show is produced by Leslie Chang, Miles Traer, Jackson Roach, and me, Mike Osborne. Special thanks also to Isha Salian, Megan Shea, and Tom Hayden. Our show is supported by Worldview Stanford and Stanford Earth. Our website got a major upgrade recently. Go check it out. It's at www.genanthro.com. Thanks to Julie Sherry for making the magic happen. On our website, you can find all our episodes as well as blog posts and extras. You can also find us on Facebook and we're on Twitter at Genanthropocene. This season is our five-year anniversary. If you like what we do, please leave us a review or rating on iTunes. That's the best way to support us right now as we continue to work on this project. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back on Thursday with John Holdren. Nice. That was a beautiful first take. Let's try to do again. all of it again. Yeah. Okay. Slow down. Yeah. Slow down a little bit. Um, okay. Got it. What, what else? Uh, I'm talking. Just remember to... that we're doing Generation Anthropocene. <laughs> oh right. <laughs> that old show. Yeah. It's like talking to an old friend, really. It is. This, that's what the show is. Yeah. 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 Totally. Spong. Yeah. Yeah. Spong. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, I Jackson, know. I think you should use that. Yeah, exactly. Just look for <laughs> Just that. Just use mics, yeah. <laughs>